0: All right. Good morning. Great to see you all here this morning. If this is your very first time at Connect, I want to welcome you. My name's Dave. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you are visiting, we're thrilled that you've come. Uh, there's actually some connection cards on the seats. If you want to fill that out for us, we'd love to be able to stay in touch with you and let you know of upcoming events. There's opportunities there to learn more about us here at Connect, uh, prayer requests, that kind of thing. So uh, feel free to go ahead and fill one of those in. You can just drop it off by that TV on the way out. So um, I'm the lead pastor here, and Casey, my wife, she, uh, she was born here in Washington. I moved here in 1994 from England and uh, worked here at another church in the community for a few years. But then Casey and I, in 2000, we moved up to the suburbs of Chicago. We lived for seven years in a, a little town called Lake Zurich in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and we loved living there. We worked with a church up there, and one of the cool things about living up there was we got to take trips into the city. Of Chicago so we would spend days there shopping and sightseeing and different kind of things uh, but one time it was around this time of the year uh, we decided to make the trip into the city because it was St Patrick's Day. And where better to go and celebrate St. Patrick's Day than Chicago? I think there's more of Ireland in Chicago than there is in Ireland. So we're like, this is going to be a great uh, day. We've heard some stories about the parade and the river. So we get there and the the parade's phenomenal. It just went on for miles and miles and miles. And it was so well attended that year. Even George Bush, the president at the time, he was visiting Chicago. He was in the parade, drove by in his big black um, bulletproof Limousine and we saw him kind of waving through the window, so it was really cool. And we'd heard about the river. And the reality is, if you've ever been to Chicago, the river's green on a good day. So I'm like, what are they talking about down there? But it goes like fluorescent green. They dye it the greenest green you've ever seen. And we're walking across the bridge there, and we're like, This is crazy. But I have to be honest, stood there watching that parade go by, as fun as it was to be there for a St. Patrick's Day parade, there was an even greater joy inside of me. It's because I was stood there thinking, I've done another thing that Ferris Bueller did on his day off. I checked it off my list. Growing up in England, thirty years ago, that movie came up. Growing up in England, I watched that movie. And when I found out I was going to get the chance to move to a city near Chicago, I was like, "I'm going to get to do some of the things that Ferris Bueller did." And I did. I took a trip to the Art Institute. Ferris went there. I uh, I went up the top of the Sears Tower. Ferris was up there looking down. Um, I got to go to a Chicago Cubs game, and uh, that's what Ferris Bueller did. And I've got to tell you, First Service didn't get to hear this story. This is so cool, okay? I'm, uh, I'm telling this story in First Service, and Caitlin comes up to me during the break. Now, Caitlin's the young lady who stands here sometimes and uh, sings. She's married to Justin, and uh, she said, hey, you showed a picture of my dad in church this morning. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, my dad. He was an extra in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he's He's right there in the yellow shirt. He's talking to the guy next to him. That's Caitlin's dad. <laughs> I thought it was cool. That I got to go to the places Ferris Mueller. Now I know someone that was in the movie. I'm like, this is amazing. So it's just been a great year. I tell you what. But being at the parade, I was like, Ferris was in a parade here. His was not St. Patrick's Day. And I didn't get to see him on Dancing to Twist and Shout on a float. But I got to check off all the things that Ferris Bueller did. I finally checked the last one off being at a parade in the city of Chicago. And I tell that story because just a little under 2,000 years ago, on this day, Palm Sunday, the day here in the church that we remember, another big parade that took place. It was a huge parade. Thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people came to line the streets to gather because word was that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And the word had spread amongst this community, amongst this city, and uh, there was a buzz around because Jesus was coming in, and and maybe you grew up in church, and you're very familiar with this particular day on the the Easter calendar. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Maybe you're aware of the the term Palm Sunday, but you're not really um, completely sure about what Palm Sunday was or is, so we're going to look at it this morning together. You know, here at Connect, we tend to teach through series, but... We found ourselves, the Love series came to an end last week, and then we've got Easter Sunday coming next Sunday, that we're beginning a brand new series after Easter. So with this kind of standalone Sunday, we decided, let's, let's actually talk about Palm Sunday. Let's talk about what happened on that day. So we're going to take a look at this story here, and maybe you're familiar with it. Hopefully, even if you're familiar with the story this morning, you'll get to learn some new things. And then more importantly, all of us here can look at this and say, now, how does that affect me today? How can I live my life differently based on what happened on that very first Palm Sunday? So the story is told by, by all four of the writers of the Gospels. They were the four guys that wrote the story of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What you'll find is that sometimes Luke will tell a story that the others didn't, or Matthew and John might tell a story, but Mark and Luke didn't. But this particular story is one of the few that all four writers tell. So we know this was a really big deal. So we're going to look at Matthew's version of the story, Matthew's account of what went down on that Palm Sunday. So... Matthew chapter 21, you can read along if you've got a Bible on your uh, phone or if you've got a Bible with you, or you can just follow along on the screens here. Matthew chapter 21 says, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. There are some translations of the Bible, they, the, the word they use there is, Hosanna to the Son of David blessings on the one who comes in the name of the lord praise god in the highest heaven the entire city of jerusalem was in uproar as he entered who is this they asked and the crowds replied it's jesus the prophet from nazareth in galilee there was an, an uproar as he entered Word around the city was spreading like wildfire. It was Passover at this time, so there would have been a larger crowd of people than normal in Jerusalem. There would have been a very large population of Jewish people in Jerusalem that day, and and many of them, probably hundreds or even thousands, gathered to watch the entrance of this man Jesus that they'd heard so much about. So Jews and Gentiles and, and Romans, they would have all gathered to witness the incoming of this man. The, the word was starting to spread. It may have been that there were some there in that city who had heard the stories of Jesus, but had never yet got to see him in real life. And they were discovering that today in Jerusalem, he's coming in. And They're like, I want to see this man that everyone is talking about. I want to see what all this fuss is about. So they gathered that day to watch Jesus come into Jerusalem. And as I was rereading this story again this week to prepare for this message, and I was thinking about this, I, I started to imagine the expectations of the crowd that day. Especially those who maybe never had actually met Jesus or spoken to him face to face. What were their expectations? Who were they imagining that they were going to get to see that day? What were their expectations of what was going to come into Jerusalem that day? Because expectations can be crazy things, can't they? I don't know if any of you are like this, but I'm a a bit of a stickler when it comes to movies, okay? If there's a big movie coming out, I want to see it on that opening weekend. And here's here's why I want to see it on that opening weekend, okay? I like watching movies, but it's more because I'm worried I'm going to bump into someone before I get to see it who's going to spoil it. They're going to say something, and even if they don't give it away, they're going to say something like, oh, it's a great movie. I, I won't tell you what, but there's a huge twist at the end. Like, ah, oh, dude, seriously, you might as well have just told me that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Because you've ruined it for me, all right? So, and I'm sorry, I've just ruined it for some of you. Um, you might as well just spoil the whole movie, because now I know there's a twist at the end. I'm going to be sitting there all through the movie looking out for it. Or do you ever find this, that people are like, oh, yeah, that movie's no good. And you you really want to see it. And now you're like, well, I don't want to see it now. I don't trust their opinion. Will I like it? Won't I like it? I'm not sure. But I find that the worst thing, the thing that spoils movies the worst for me, is if I don't, before I get a chance to see it, someone says to me, oh, this is the best movie you've ever seen. This is the, great. It's amazing. Like, ah, uh, because now all through the movie, I'm kind of sitting there and I've got these expectations because this person has told me it was a life-changing event for them. So however good the movie is, I, I feel like uh, I wasn't, I mean, he was making out like it changed his world forever. We've got a guy who helps on a setup up every Sunday and we, we tease him sometimes because um, the, the best movie he's ever seen is the last movie he's ever seen. <laughs> every, every time he's just seen a movie, we're like, oh, is it good best movie I've ever seen? My favorite movie, last one I just saw. <laughs> he, he just loves movies, and the one he's just seen is always the best he's ever seen. But that's the problem with expectations, is I sit there in the movie, and however good it is, sometimes it just doesn't live up to the hype of what this person told me it was I was going to experience. So I wonder what it was like for the crowd that day. As they looked at those palm branches being laid down in the the path of Jesus. As they heard the cheering and the screaming and the shouting. I wonder what was going through their minds that day. How about the Roman soldiers? Their job was to kind of police the, the city of Jerusalem. They, were, they ruled over Jerusalem at that time. So those soldiers, their job was to arrest people, look out for people who caused trouble. And, and they had to have heard rumor. Maybe they'd even been told by some of their um, commanders, look out for this Jesus. Word on the street is that he's here to incite some kind of rebellion. He's here to, to stir up trouble, to, to overthrow. That's, that's what people are kind of expecting of him. So I wonder if that day when those soldiers heard that Jesus was coming to town, they were just a little bit more on guard, a little bit more ready for a battle. Maybe some of them were kind of looking up the street, expecting like a, a William Wallace kind of Braveheart figure to come marching down the street with paint across his face, screaming, Freedom! And they're ready, you know, to, to um, put down a, a riot or to deal. And along comes this guy on a donkey. Now, that was quite significant at that moment, especially to the Roman soldiers. And here's why I remember, you know, being very familiar with the story and, and wondering, you know, growing up, if, um, uh, if the donkey was just the best they could do. You know, he said to the disciples, hey, I want to enter Jerusalem. I want to go in in style. Go out there and get me the best form of, of transportation you can. Maybe a chariot or a horse. And, and they come back and they're like, well, we found this donkey. It's like sending them out for a Humvee and they come back with a Prius. They're like, this is the best we could do. Should we go to battle? But that's not the case, is it? We just read this morning, didn't we? That, that Jesus said, go to this place and get a donkey. In fact, if anyone tries to stop you, tell them that the Lord sent you. Tell them that the master sent you. Now, maybe you've heard this story before and that's always been a bit confusing to you. Like, seriously? They just went to some guy's house and they're untying the donkey and he comes in and he's like, hey, get your hands off my donkey. And they're like, hey, the Lord needs him. Oh, that's fine. Take the donkey. <laughs> it seems a bit peculiar, but I was studying this this week and apparently in that culture, that wasn't that uncommon. Very often, Roman governors or soldiers would come in and they'd say to a person, hey, the emperor needs this right now. And, and they had to kind of give it up. It was kind of the New Testament equivalent of, FBI, I need your car. You know, and you just have to get out and let them drive away. So probably Jesus's importance and his reputation, when the guy tried to stop him, they said, hey, it's Jesus who needs it. He's like, oh, well, take the donkey. So we know now that this wasn't an accident. This wasn't the best the disciples could do. Jesus has specifically said, I want to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Here's why it's important to understand that, and the Roman soldiers would have completely understood this. You see, in that particular culture, when Roman emperors, when generals rode into cities, there were two ways they could ride into a city. They could ride in on the back of a horse or in a chariot, and that represented, I am coming to do battle. If they were going to conquer a city, that general would come in on the back of a horse with an army behind him. But there will be times where a Roman soldier, a general, a leader would come into a city on the back of a donkey. And that was because he wasn't coming to conquer or destroy. It represented that he was coming in peace. When those Roman soldiers saw Jesus on the back of that donkey, I have to believe that some of them who were expecting a fight maybe just kind of eased up a little bit and thought, Ah, oh, no, he's on a donkey. He comes in peace. I wonder if their expectations of who Jesus was and what he was about to do changed when they saw the mode of transport that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on that day. You know, others in the crowd would have picked up on this as well. There would have been people of Jerusalem gathered along the sides of the streets to see Jesus coming in. And I think they had expectations too. Maybe they'd seen him in some of the surrounding communities. Maybe they just heard about him. Maybe this is the first time they'd ever got to see him in the flesh. But the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, had very high expectations of who Jesus was and what he was about to do. You see, their expectations were based on hundreds of years of prophecies talking about a Messiah that would one day come. You see, these Jewish people, they would have grown up and listened to stories from their parents and their grandparents and their their great-grandparents. They would have heard the stories of this this Messiah that was one day promised to come. They would have remembered the times, not just from the stories their ancestors told them from the scriptures they could read, of David sitting on the throne, king of, of all Israel. And here they were in Jerusalem in captivity and the the Messiah would one day come to set them free, to liberate them. And these nationalistic Jewish people were thinking, one day the Messiah is going to come and we're going to be free of all of this. Once again, Jerusalem will be God's city. We'll be free of persecution, free of suffering. And maybe, just maybe, we're going to get to see that Messiah in our lifetimes. What we're hearing about this Jesus, this very well could be him. Because they were hearing that the, the blinds were getting to see, that the lame were walking. Just a few weeks before Palm Sunday, Jesus would have gone and raised Lazarus from the dead. Man, I bet that story spread all over the region. Have you heard what happens? Jesus went to this guy's house. He died. He'd been dead for a few days and Jesus came and brought him back to life. They had to be thinking, this must be the Messiah. And then as he rode in on that donkey, it was his way of declaring, yes, I am the king you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. You see, if you've read some of the earlier stories of Jesus when he was performing miracles, in the there were three years of ministry that we read about in these uh, accounts of Jesus' life. And in some of the earlier years, you'll see time and time again that Jesus would do something, and, and maybe he'd heal somebody from leprosy, or a lame person would be able to walk, or he'd perform a miracle and feed thousands of people. But whatever it was, word would start to spread, and Jesus would almost say, "Hey, shh, keep it down, keep it down. Don't don't tell too many people." He was almost trying to, to hush people up. He didn't want word of his name being spread. And and when challenged on it by his disciples, he said, "It's not the right time." The time isn't quite right, but this day, this day when people came to line the streets to worship him, to cry out and declare him, Hosanna, the son of David, he did nothing to stop them. He knew this was the right time, and he allowed the crowds to cheer. His purpose in riding into Jerusalem that day was to make public his claim to be their Messiah, to be the king of of Israel to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. Matthew talks about one of those prophecies. It was written by a man named Zechariah who wrote a book in the Old Testament hundreds of years before. And in that book, Matthew quotes, he quotes there in verse 4, he says, this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus gladly allowed them to lie in the streets, to lay their cloaks, their palm branches, and sign a respect and honor. Verse 9 tells us that he was the center of the procession. All the people were shouting, praise God for the Son of Jesus. And he allowed all this to continue on because he was the king. They had expectations of who Jesus was, and he met all of their expectations. As he rode in on that donkey, he said, I am the king. I am the Messiah. Now, unfortunately, they also had expectations of what the king would then do. What the Messiah's role would be. What, what he would do. How they would benefit from this king. They had a lot of expectations of how this was going to be good for them. And how this was all going to play out. And over the next few days, none of their expectations were met the way they imagined. I think in their eyes, Jesus let them down. We thought you were the Messiah, but it turns out you're not. He was the Messiah. He just didn't live up to what their expectations were of how he was going to conquer, how he was going to reign as king. A week later, Jesus was crucified and they had to be thinking, yep, wasn't him. Because that's not how we saw this playing out. We had these great expectations of what the Messiah would do. And and he hasn't done that. In fact, the crazy thing is, almost 2,000 years ago on this Palm Sunday, those who lined the streets crying, Hosanna. Which means save us now. Right now, save us. That's, that's why they were saying Hosanna. It meant more than just praise God or, or you know worship. It was like, you're here to save us, and we want to be saved now. That's what they were crying out, Hosanna. The same people that cried out Hosanna on Palm Sunday cried out, crucify him. Five days later on Good Friday, just five days later, the very same people that were worshiping Jesus were calling for his death. On a cross. Why? Because they had these expectations of, of what they thought he should be, who they thought he should be, what they thought he should do, and he didn't meet their expectations and they turned on him. They said, You're not who we want you to be. It's crazy, you know, Matthew 21, if you read on after his triumphal entry, the very first thing Jesus did after his entrance into Jerusalem. It says in verse 12 that he entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables, the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves. Instead of overthrowing the government as they expected he would, he overthrew the temple, his own people, who had polluted and corrupted a place of worship for God. Instead of overthrowing the establishment, he was overthrowing those that were standing up, for God, those who are proclaiming to be the religious leaders. Within that first week, all of the expectations of Jesus turned. People were disillusioned. And within five days, all but just a few close disciples had turned on him. So I love how we can look back and reflect on that very first Palm Sunday and and remind ourselves of what that uh, must have looked like in the eyes of those people. But um, I also love looking at passages like this and say, God, how can this help me today? As somebody who is following Jesus, how how can I learn from this? What can you teach me through this situation? And I think something we can all learn this morning is just this idea of expectations, you see, these people had an idea of, of who they thought Jesus should be. They weren't really looking to who he was. They were looking at who they thought he should be. They, they, who they wanted him to be. And today, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing we? We can kind of have these expectations of who we think Jesus should be, who, how we think he should behave in our lives, what he should do for us, what he maybe shouldn't do. And, and we kind of build up these expectations. And expectations are a good thing because a lot of them are based on truth. A lot of them are based on what we read about Jesus in the Bible. There's a lot we can read and understand and know to be true. We know that um, he loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. We know that to be true. We'll be celebrating that next Sunday. We know to be true that he claims that he was someone whose love would never be separated, that we could never be separated from. That nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus. That's a promise, and we know that to be true. We can have that expectation that there's nothing that will separate us from Jesus' love. We know that God is someone who has promised to never, ever leave us or forsake us. I think that's a realistic expectation to have, that no matter what we go through in life, we can know and we can expect God to never, ever leave us, and we can stand firm and stand strong on that expectation. You know, that day in that original Palm Sunday, the the people lined in the streets. In a lot of areas, they were right. They expected a Messiah, and he was the Messiah. They gave worship saying Hosanna to the Son of David. He was the promised Son of David. The problem is, they had some expectations of what he was going to do and how he was going to perform that they had wrong. And we can do that sometimes, can't we? Sometimes we put expectations upon Jesus that just aren't real. And when he doesn't behave the way we think he should, our faith can get shaken. I've met people who have endured great suffering. It could be the loss of a job or a loved one, a serious illness, a, a complication in their lives. And it can cause their faith in Jesus to be su- to, to be shaken. It can affect the, the way they see Jesus. They start questioning, like, why didn't Jesus come through for me? If he loved me, he would have... Da-da-da-da. They had these expectations of Jesus, and it seems that he failed to meet those expectations. But maybe the expectations were unreal. Maybe we thought he should have done something, but it was based on our expectations of him. You see, the reality is we live right now in a broken world. And as long as we live in this broken world, we will always be surrounded by sickness and death and pain and suffering. And one day that's going to come to an end. In one of two ways, either we're going to get to the end of our lives. And if we are uh, following Jesus, I believe that at the end of our lives, that death is just a, a transition and we get to spend eternity with God. And in that eternity, it is perfection. No more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sorrow. The second way is that Jesus returns. The Bible says that one day he will return on a white horse. He will come as a conquering general, as, as a conquering king to say, that is it, it's enough. But until then, we live in this broken world, and there will be suffering, and there will be pain, and there will be times where, because of this brokenness that we're surrounded with, we may have an expectation of how Jesus should respond in a situation of our life, and it may not play out that way. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves looking at Jesus and almost kind of pointing the finger. Like those crowds did when they were worshipping on Sunday, but then they were crying out for his death on Friday. Because he didn't live up to what they felt their expectations of him were. They can be dangerous things, can't they? When you put expectations on people, because what ends up happening is that, that, that you start kind of pointing the finger saying, well, you were at fault. You should have done something different. I read a great story a while back uh, that I want to share with you this morning, and this kind of really defines clearly the danger of expectations and how it can affect relationships and the way you feel about other people. Uh, the stories of a lady who worked for a company, and this particular company, they were like a graphic design company, and they did all sorts of graphic designs, and uh, they, I think they specialized in like movie posters and really incredible you know, graphics and posters, and this lady was a secretary at this company. That's all she did there. And she came into one work one morning distraught because the night before she'd lost her cat. Her cat had gone missing. I know we've got some cat lovers in the audience this morning who already are heartbroken at this story. She'd lost her cat. So, so she sends an email to one of the graphic designers and she attaches a picture of Missy, her cat, and she says, hey, David, I really hope you could help me. Uh, my cat ran away. I'm devastated. Um, I know you do posters. Could you do me a poster that says, uh, Missy, my cat is missing, uh, that I can put up all around my neighborhood and hopefully we can get the cat back? Now, like I said, this guy for a living designs incredibly complex poster. So here was his response via email Shannon, that is shocking news. Luckily, I was sitting down when I read your email and not halfway up a ladder or a tree. How are you holding up? I'm surprised you're at work today. What with Missy out there cold, frightened and alone. Possibly lying by the side of the road with her legs squashed. Crying out, Shannon, where are you? Although I have two paying clients expecting completed work this afternoon, I will of course drop everything and do whatever it takes to facilitate the speedy return of Missy. Signs, David. I like David. David's got a little bit of sarcastic edge to him. And I don't think Shannon quite picked up on the, the sarcasm in the email. But, but David's response was, hey, I design really important posters for a living for people who pay me a lot of money to do this. And you expect me to do one for your cat? That's kind of the response he was giving. She's like, great. Yeah, if you can get on that poster real quick, that'll be great. So not giving up. She responds, hey, can you do me poster? So he's like, okay. I can do you a poster. So here was the poster he did for her to put up all around her neighborhood. Missing Missy, a Shannon production. She replies, she's like, well, that's not really the kind of poster. I mean, it looks good, but that's not going to help me get my cat back. I was thinking more just a picture of the cat, you know, name, phone number, that kind of thing. And I'm not sure how helpful. I mean, even the picture I sent you, that's tiny. Can, can, you, send, can you at least make the cat bigger? He's like, yes, I can make the cat bigger. How about this one? Missing Missy. <laughs> Extremely emotional. I was in tears. The quote from Shannon. She writes back. She's getting a bit frustrated. now. She goes, no, no. I, I don't need something like that. I just need a picture. I need it to say lost. I need it to say Missy the cat. And then my phone number. Can you just do that for me, please? He's like, absolutely. This is the next one he sends her. Lost Missy the cat. She's like, that's, that's what I had in mind, but that's not my cat. He's like, I know, but I found this image of a cat. I thought it looked a lot better than your cat. It just makes the poster look good. So I thought I'd send you this. She goes, no, I don't need a bed-looking cat. I need my cat. Can, can you please just send me a picture? Keep the lost, keep the cat's name, but put my cat in the picture, please. David's like, sure. This is what he sends her. Lost, Missy the cat, reward offered, $2,000. She's like, $2,000? I don't have $2,000. I've never said anything about a reward. Take the reward off. I'm not offering a reward. Please change the poster. He says, okay, I'll change the poster. This is the next one. Lost, Missy the cat, no reward. She's like, ah, this, this isn't helping. Can, can you just take the reward part or out altogether? Just don't even mention a reward at all. Just picture, cat, lost, phone number. I just want that, nothing else. He's like, Fine. How about this? This was the final draft. She's like, fine, (laughs) I can use that. She takes the picture of Missy the cat wearing a nice red hat. So maybe you're here this morning and you're in the kind of trade where maybe you're into graphics or design or photography or car mechanics or whatever it is. and, And you've encountered something like this where someone's come to you and said, hey, I know you do this. Would you do this for me? And suddenly, like David in this story, an expectation has been put on you. Now, in this story, David very sarcastically deals with Shannon. Very cruelly, actually. This poor lady has lost her cat, and he's just making her misery worse and worse. If Shannon was here this morning, kind of stood next to me here on the stage, I'd say, tell me this story. She goes, well, you know who the problem was? It was David. He's the problem. He just was messing around. He never took me seriously. He did this. He did that. He did this. But the problem is that in the first place... Shannon expected him to do it. He'd never put anything on a notes board saying, hey, I I designed these posters for a living, but if anyone's ever missing a cat, I'd be happy to help you with a cat poster. She'd put this expectation upon him. And then when he didn't meet that expectation, she was getting more and more angry. In fact, I didn't read the emails. You can Google this, the stories out there. And the, the exchange is even more funny when you read the emails backwards and forwards between these two. But the danger is that sometimes when we're in a situation like this, we point the finger and say, well, you are the problem. You let me down. You should have done this. You should have done a better poster for me. But actually, the reality is that she put an expectation on this graphic designer that should never have been there in the first place. And I think sometimes we do that with Jesus. We put these expectations, these beliefs of how we think he should. And then when it doesn't play out the way we want it to, then we start to get angry. We start to get frustrated. We start to get upset. Like, Jesus, come on. Why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you do that? But actually, we were the ones that put those expectations upon him. That's what happened that day on Palm Sunday. The crowd were angry that Jesus didn't perform the way they thought he should have performed. We thought you were going to come in and overthrow. What's all this Messiah talk? We thought the Messiah would come in and set us free. Well, the truth is the Messiah did come to set Him free. That following Friday, Jesus gave up his life, suffered at the hands of Pontius Pilate, was was crucified on a cross, was, was killed and rose again three days later so that we may have a relationship with God. That's how he set us free. It's not that he didn't follow through on what he said he was going to do. It's just he didn't do it in the way they were expecting. And sometimes I think we look to God and we're like, well, I'm expecting it to happen this way, but God may have a completely different plan. And that's where our faith is put to the test. Am I willing to trust God, even if at times I expected it would happen this way, but it seems to be happening this way? In fact, as I was preparing this message, I couldn't shake this thought that maybe we're just looking at this the wrong way altogether. Instead of us sitting and having these expectations of Jesus, maybe we should turn to him and say, Jesus, what do you expect of us? What is your expectation for my life? You see, as Jesus went into Jerusalem that day, in Luke's account of the story, it says that he was looking out um, onto the city of Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 19, it says this, it says, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon when you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When he talks about Jesus crying there, and that, that word wept, it literally means sobbing, like he was sobbing, like really uncontrollable, loud sobbing. Can you imagine that? People lying in the streets, putting down palm leaves, celebrating, singing, and they're like, hey, Jesus, you're kind of spotting the mood here a little bit. We're trying to have a parade, we're celebrating, and here's you weeping. going to pull yourself together. But I think he was weeping because he knew what their expectations were of him, and he knew that Things were going to play out a lot differently. In fact, I think he even knew what was in the future, the very near future for Jerusalem itself. You see, just 40 years later, in 70 AD, a Roman emperor by the name of Titus, he led a legion into Jerusalem. And after a siege of 143 days, 600,000 Jews were put to death. In fact, the historian, Josephus, when talking about this event, he says that rivers of blood were flowing through the gates of Jerusalem. The temple where they'd all gathered to celebrate Passover, it was burned to the ground and dismantled brick by brick. Jesus knew that not only was he not going to meet their expectations of what they thought the Messiah should do, he also knew as he wept that their lives were going to become even worse. They were going to see even more persecution and suffering. And we know the stories of the Christians and the lions and and all these were ahead in the years to come. Because he also knew that the Messiah didn't come to to overthrow the government. The the Messiah came to overthrow your heart. That was the key. You see, on Palm Sunday, we can very quickly change from worshippers to protesters. When we have these unhealthy expectations of Jesus, just as they did on that day. We've got to remember that Jesus' plan to bring victory, it wasn't to overthrow the government. His triumphal entry that day wasn't into the city, but into the hearts of the people. He knew that if he could get into the hearts of the people, it would change the way they lived. They would care for the sick. They would look after the poor. That he could change the world through the hearts of the people. That was the plan of the Messiah. And the great news is is that plan still exists for us today. So instead of saying, Jesus, this is what we expect of you. When we ask the question, Jesus, what do you expect of us? The answer is that I want to live in your hearts. And I want to rule and reign in your lives. And I want to affect and impact the world in which you live through you. I want to see the world in which you live um, transformed because of the relationship I have with you. There was a book I read a while back, it was um, by an author named Malcolm Gladwell. It was called David and Goliath, and it it talked about different stories, starting with David and Goliath, and then other stories of how when small groups of people stand up for what's right, they can make a huge difference. He started out talking about David and Goliath, but then other situations. He said as he wrote the book, he was interested in the weapons of the Spirit, the peculiar and inexplicable power that comes from within. He found a common theme in a lot of these stories, especially those who were um, people of faith. There was just something inside them that drove them to to stand up against the Goliaths in their life and to do what was right. The last story in this book was about a little community in France called Le Chambon. And Le Chambon was this, this small village in France that wasn't unfamiliar to persecution. You see, the community was made up of a group of Protestant Christians called the Huguenots. The Huguenots were kind of established a couple of hundred years before. They came out of the teaching of a man called John Calvin. And, and because of their, their beliefs and their Protestant beliefs, the, the National Church of France, the Catholic Church, persecuted these people. Over the space of 200 years, they saw some of their pastors arrested, tortured, even killed. So they were very familiar with persecution, but it didn't shake the fact that they believed in God. Jesus was in their hearts. They wanted to live life differently. So it's not surprised surprise that on the Sunday after France fell to the Germans that the pastor of the church in that community stood up and preached a sermon in which he said that if the Germans made the townsfolk of Le Chambon do anything that they considered contrary to the gospel, that the town wasn't to go along. So the schoolchildren in that school, they refused to give the fascist salute each morning as the new government had decreed that they must. The teachers were meant to sign an oath of loyalty to the state. But under the leadership of this pastor in the uh, the community, they they wouldn't do it. You know, the story is told that throughout the course of the war, thousands of Jewish people found their way to this little village where they were protected and hidden and sent away into the forest when the Nazis would come in, sent across the border into Switzerland. Thousands of people were saved. Because this small community took these refugees in. There's a story of um, the pastor's wife one day when the very first refugee appeared at her door. She said it never occurred to her to say no. I did not know that it would be dangerous. Nobody thought of that. She didn't think of the danger. She thought of the gospel and the difference that Jesus had made in her life. That's the Messiah conquering today. In the face of great opposition, people who follow Jesus standing up and saying, no, we're going to live differently. The saddest thing about the story of Le Chambon is that throughout the country of France, there were thousands of Christians, thousands of followers of Jesus. But many of them did nothing to help those in need. But this community, because of the suffering they'd experienced, and because of the way they interpreted the gospel, they couldn't just stand by and do nothing. They weren't looking to the expectations of Jesus. They knew the expectations he had of them. And they had to live differently. So let's pray this week as we go into Easter. Jesus, what are your expectations in my life? How can I be used by you in the community in which I live? How can I make a difference in the community around me? How can I change the lives of my family and friends and neighbors? What can you do through me? Let's pray. Father, we just um, remember on this Palm Sunday, what a wonderful day that must have been as Jesus came in, celebrated as the king and Messiah that he was. But we know thousands of years later, looking back, that this was the beginning of what would be the worst week of his life. But thank you, Jesus, that in that moment, it's not that you failed to meet expectations. You just showed us, Lord, that our expectations were wrong. That the solution to bring in change in this world wasn't to overthrow the Roman establishment. It was to overthrow the hearts of the people. And in doing so, they could change the culture. They could change the world. So help us this morning, Lord, 2,000 years later, not to make the same mistake. Not to have unreal expectations of you, but to say, Jesus, what do you expect of me? Your triumphal entry didn't just happen on that road. For many of us here this morning, it happened in my heart. At some point in our lives, we know, Jesus, that you made a triumphal entry into our heart, and now we want to make a difference in the world in which we live. So guide us, I pray, and help us to always be aware of what you expect of us, Lord, and how we can uh, respond to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being here. See you next Sunday, Easter Sunday, services at the same time as normal.